We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Border cities begin declaring states of emergency in anticipation of Title 42 ending. Biden's reckless open border policy has called a, has caused a catastrophe here in South Texas. Secretary Janet Yellen urges a resolution to the debt ceiling and claims the U.S. could default by June 1. The House is fully capable of operating under Republican control. It has now put the, the Democrats on the defensive. J.P. Morgan Chase acquires another failed San Francisco area bank. Well, the average American should care because of confidence. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast. Your first look at today's top stories for Tuesday, May 2nd. I'm Mike Scott. The manhunt continues for Francisco Oropesa, the man who allegedly shot and killed five Texas family members. And according to new reports from the scene, Oropesa is a Mexican national who was previously deported four times. Reporter Ali Bradley of News Nation says that not only was Oropesa in the country illegally, but so was the woman he was living with. He has a rap sheet. So does the person living with him. The person on the deed of the house, a 52-year-old woman, also here from Mexico. She was supposed to leave the country back in 2013, but she never did. She has been on the radar of Border Patrol and ICE for years. Both of them have been able to fly under the radar without any kind of law enforcement interacting with them. Oropesa, the last time he was interacted with was in 2016. This woman, 2013. Why hasn't anybody gone to her house and checked in to see why she didn't self-deport back in 2013? Bradley explains that many people believe Oropesa was able to stay in the U.S. so long only because of the cartels. So we talk about the immigration issues that are certainly happening down here. Now, I did reach out to Customs and Border Protection and asked how Francisco Oropesa was able to be here after being deported four times, living in a home legally. Of course, he had a weapon, which we can only assume he had illegally if he had four deportations on his record in a DWI. But why were these people able to act so freely under the radar? And what neighbors are telling me is that this is happening a lot down here and that this is an area controlled by the cartel. They say Criminal organizations are running everything right now. They are running. This is a big mule area where they have drug runners and they have human and drug smuggling. That's the reality out here. This news comes as El Paso, Texas, declared a state of emergency on May 1 because of a major pandemic era measure scheduled to end. Reporter Marky Martin lays down the dire circumstances that many border cities are currently facing. Today, El Paso, Texas, entering a state of emergency in preparation for Title 42's termination next week. City shelters are at capacity, with hundreds of migrants overflowing into city streets and even more waiting just across the U.S.-Mexico border in Ciudad Juarez. Brownsville, Texas, reporting more than 15,000 migrants crossed the river illegally last week alone. 
Border Patrol sites, there are currently about 7,000 daily encounters. In April, the CBP commissioner testifying before Congress. He expects that number to rise to 10,000 when Title 42 ends. This weekend, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas acknowledging a need for resources at every level. Meanwhile, El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser explains that many migrants are at the border waiting for Title 42 to end. As we talk to some of these uh, asylum seekers, they're waiting for May 11th. May 11th, they believe, will be the day that they become without any documentation that can come into the United States. Title 42 is a public health policy that was put in place during the pandemic, allowing U.S. officials to deport immigrants seeking asylum. It is set to expire on May 11th. The policy, which was imposed by the Trump administration, was intended to limit the holding of immigrants in places COVID-19 could spread easily. Republican Congresswoman Monica De La Cruz of Texas says that the blame for the border crisis should be placed squarely on President Biden. Biden's reckless open border policy has called a, has caused a catastrophe here in South Texas. And just to give you an idea, in the last two weeks of April, in the RGV sector, the Rio Grande Valley sector, which includes Texas 15, we have seen 30,000 illegal immigrants crossing our border. And of those 30,000, 20,000 of them are assigned just to Brownsville. Now, what many people don't realize, if you could compare the situation, is in September of 2021, we had the Haitian migration where there was close to 20,000 in September. We're already to capacity here in the Rio Grande Valley, and that's because Title 42 hasn't even been lifted. De La Cruz is proud that she and her Republican colleagues have been able to put a bill together she believes will help solve the migrant crisis. The House Republican majority has put together one of the strongest border security and immigrant packages, safety packages that's ever been put. And we will vote on this package next week. What the Biden administration can do immediately is sign that legislation to law. And what that will do is not only keep the immigrants who are being fed false information, being kept keeping them safe, but it will also keep our borders and our nation safe as well. And he needs to sign that into law immediately. The Texas Republican goes on to say that she is hopeful that the immigration and border security bill that she and other House GOP members have put together will actually pass. This package is the is a humane package that will help not only secure our border, but keep immigrants safe. Right now, the cartels are exploding, exploiting those immigrants with human trafficking, sex trafficking, child trafficking. We see it not only here on the border, but in our big cities of Houston, Dallas, San Antonio. And what this is going to do is send a strong message to all of the people around the world that we want them to come to America in a safe way at our ports of entry. And that's why I believe next week when this package is put on the floor, it will pass. Illegal immigrants have been setting up camp on the sidewalk and outside homeless shelters across border towns in Texas in the weeks leading up to the end of Title 42.
Humanitarian groups are trying to restore the flow of help in Sudan, where millions of people were already relying on international aid. Daybreak Insider's Charles de Ledesma has more on the ongoing violence in the war-torn country. The UN Food Agency says it's ending the temporary suspension of its operations in Sudan, put in place after three of its team members were killed in the war-wrecked Darfur region. However, aid movements face risks and logistical difficulties. The World Food Programme will resume a food distribution in four provinces, working in areas where security permits, and the International Committee of the Red Cross has flown in medical supplies for hospitals overwhelmed by the virus. I'm Charles Thiladesma. On Monday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen raised eyebrows when she warned that, in her opinion, the U.S. may run out of money to pay its debt obligations by June 1 which is a lot earlier than everyone was expecting. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen released a letter to Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy and other congressional leaders from both parties in which she says the Treasury's debt limit measures, the special accounting maneuvers it's been using, uh, may be exhausted by June 1st. That would be the infamous X date. So once again, Janet Yellen saying that the debt limit measures may be exhausted by June 1st, after which point the Treasury has run out of cash and could potentially start defaulting, potentially on some of its obligations. Uh, This is in a letter that Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, sent to Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House. She did repeat her call for Congress to raise the debt limit as a result. Meantime, President Biden has offered an invitation for Speaker Kevin McCarthy to meet and discuss the debt ceiling. However, the president has repeatedly stated that he would veto the bill that the GOP-controlled House passed. The Republican-backed legislation allows the federal government to borrow another $1.5 trillion or until March 31, 2024, whichever comes first, in exchange for discretionary spending cuts for non-defense programs. The legislation would also limit the growth of future expenditures to 1% per year for the next decade, cancel Joe Biden's student debt forgiveness plan and roll back portions of the Democrats' $739 billion government spending package implemented last year. Senate leader Chuck Schumer has indicated that the GOP-backed bill is dead on arrival in the Democrat-controlled Senate. President Biden and Senate Democrats are demanding a clean bill to raise the debt ceiling be passed with no strings like spending cuts attached. Michael Falkender, a professor of finance at the University of Maryland and the chief economist for AFPI, joined the Salem Radio Network and explains why Republicans passing a debt ceiling bill was so important. The progress that the House made last week is exceptionally important because the Democrats and President Biden anticipated that they were going to be able to get the the Republicans to roll and that they would just rubber stamp the debt that is being incurred by all of Biden's spending. And the fact that Speaker McCarthy, despite taking, you know, 15 ballots to be elected speaker, the fact that he was able to round up a majority in the House to simultaneously raise the debt ceiling while making significant reductions in spending demonstrates that the House is 
fully capable of operating under Republican control. And as you said, has now put the, the Democrats on the defensive and back on their heels because they expected to get a cleaned up ceiling through. That, never mind the fact that Joe Biden, multiple times as senator, required that there be spending cuts. And in fact, in the 80s, he voted no on a debt ceiling exactly because there were not debt, there were not spending reductions. We have now got the only bill that has passed the Congress that has extended the debt ceiling is the one that also makes significant spending reductions. Falkender believes that now there is a good chance that the House's bill could actually pass the Senate. Let's remember that before Schumer can get something through the Senate, he's got to get past the filibuster, which means he needs 60 votes. Senator Manchin has already said that what the House put forward, while he doesn't agree with every part of it, is reasonable. Uh, and then you've got Senator Feinstein, who, for illness reasons, hasn't been able to attend the Senate for the last couple of months. So you've got 50 senators that seemingly are in favor of what the House done and 49 currently who are opposed. Who knows if we can get a Dinema or a Tester in Montana to come along on some of these things. But, yes, Schumer is going to have to compromise if he's going to get past the filibuster in the Senate, which means he's going to have to bring on at least – you know, nine or ten Republicans, depending upon whether or not they can get Feinstein to the chamber. The professor of finance lays out why he believes it's so important to extend the debt limit. That hands 2024 to the Republicans. All, you know, the House, the Senate, and the White House. It's going to be very interesting it be to catastrophic. see. It would be catastrophic if we did not extend the debt ceiling. There's, you know, I was a former assistant secretary of the Treasury you're either going to give Janet Yellen carte blanche to arbitrarily decide what things to pay and what not, but there are significant IT issues concerning whether or not they actually can prioritize payment. The bottom line is it's not clear that they can actually figure out what to spend money on, what not to. The debt ceiling needs to be extended to ensure that there is not a default. That means you've got to pass something through the Senate that can reconcile with the House. After last week's successful vote, Kevin McCarthy accused the president of ignoring the debt ceiling issue by refusing to negotiate with Republicans, saying, quote, the president can no longer ignore by not negotiating, end quote. Republicans now have their eye on five states as they hope to flip enough Senate seats to regain a majority in 2024. We get more on this political development from our Daybreak Insider on Capitol Hill, Bob Agnew. Democrats have more than twice as many seats up for re-election next year. That gives Republicans a good chance of flipping enough seats to reclaim the majority. Ranked most to least likely GOP flips are West Virginia, Montana, Ohio, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. Republicans got a major boost last week with news that popular West Virginia Governor Jim Justice has decided to make a run at Democrat Joe Manchin's seat. John Tester is seen as vulnerable as the only Democrat statewide office holder in the red state of Montana. Bob Agnew reports. First Republic Bank was seized by regulators on Monday, making it the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. All of its deposits and most of its assets in the bank's possession were sold to J.P. Morgan Chase in the hopes of easing concerns about the banking sector in America. 
Well, J.P. Morgan Chase now in control of First Republic Bank after regulators seized the bank and sold off all of its deposits and most of its assets. Now, this is the third major bank to fall since March and the second largest bank failure ever in U.S. history. President Biden responded to the news by saying that his administration is ensuring that confidence in U.S. banks remains strong. These actions are going to make sure that the banking system is safe and sound. While depositors are being protected, shareholders are losing their investments. I've called on Congress to give regulators the tools to hold bank executives accountable. Last Monday, the San Francisco-based bank stunned analysts when it revealed that $100 billion in deposits had flowed out of the bank. Its executives took no questions from analysts on an earning conference call. First Republic stock then plunged more than 50 percent one day after the report. Dan Rocato, a finance professor at the University of San Diego, is watching First Republic Bank and explains why the average American should care about its failure. Well, the average American should care because of confidence, right? Our whole banking system, our whole economy runs on one word, and that is confidence. So to the extent that this crumbled or fell apart, and if we had different headlines this morning, Natasha, we would have probably a very different outcome in the financial markets. And that means that would ripple through the economy, impacting your 401k and my 401k, and who knows where it would lead to. So that's why the average American this morning should care about it. However, Rocato says there is a silver lining in the fall of First Republic Bank. So here's the good news. Uh, in the 100 years that the FDIC has been around, not one depositor has ever lost a penny when it comes to insured deposits. Now, there's gray area when there's uninsured deposits. But as long as you and I stick within those limits, there is nothing to worry about. Rocato does warn that during times like these, scammers will come out of the woodwork so Americans should be careful about who they're doing business with. It is frightening and it's upsetting when you see headlines like this. There's no question. That's a natural human emotion. Number one, make sure that you are with an FDI-insured bank and you're within those limits, as we just said. Know your bank. Know who you're doing business with. Most importantly, don't panic. This isn't the time to run to your bank, take money out and bury it in the backyard. It's a lot less safe in the backyard than it is and your FDIC-insured bank. And perhaps most importantly, avoid scams. Unfortunately, Natasha, you and I have seen this when we've reported on these things. This is when the scammers sort of come out, whether they be sophisticated scammers or unsophisticated. They're trying to prey on fear. So this is not the time to put all your money in some unknown cryptocurrency and bet against the banks. J.P. Morgan expects the addition of First Republic to add $500 million to its net income per year, although... It expects to incur $2 billion in cost integrating First Republic into its operations over the next 18 months. Meantime, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is recommending an overhaul of the U.S. insurance deposit system. Daybreak Insider's Norman Hall has more on this story. The FDIC says there should be a rethinking of its decades-old policy of insuring up to $250,000 in bank deposits. Instead, an overhaul would allow regulators to cover higher amounts on a targeted basis. The proposed change appears to openly acknowledge that the FDIC is looking for ways to calm both depositors and markets as the organization contends with the third U.S. bank failure this year. 
First Republic Bank became the second largest failure in history Monday when regulators seized it and J.P. Morgan Chase stepped up as a buyer. Norman Hall, Washington. General Mills has issued a nationwide recall on bags of its flour after dangerous bacteria has been detected in a sample. Our Daybreak Insider Jackie Quinn gives us what we need to check for in our own pantries. General Mills says it's discovered salmonella in a five-pound bag of its gold medal flour. The company's now announced a recall involving two, five, and ten-pound bags, including bleached and unbleached all-purpose flour products. The affected batches have a best-used date of March 27th or March 28th of 2024. General Mills is urging customers to check if they have bags in their cabinets or pantries, and they can call the company if they do. The Food and Drug Administration warns people should never consume raw products made with flour, like cookie dough or batter. I'm Jackie Quinn. And finally... If you ever wanted to cross off mowing the lawn from your chores list, well, this is the month to do it. No Mow May is an annual event in some areas that gives participants a good excuse to skip yard work in order to allow spring pollinators a chance to thrive for a few weeks. Plant Life, a U.K. conservation charity, started the movement in 2019 to try and restore some bee, butterfly, and wildflower habitat. By 2020, Nomo May reached the U.S. with thousands of neighborhoods participating all over the country, and that number is expected to grow slowly. But not everyone is on board with the movement. According to landscape experts, not only are overgrown lawns unattractive, but they could lead to soil issues as well. Our insider Nick Smith breaks down both sides of the argument. There are pros and cons to both sides, called No Mow May. And it started as an idea for homeowners to allow their lawns to grow long to help out the ecosystem. In fact, it was a University of Minnesota researchers actually did a study, and what they said is that, that by not mowing promotes flowers for pollinators such as bees, birds, and butterflies. They say grass grows excessively twice a year, including the start of summer, and provides nutrients to withstand drought and rising temperatures. But on the other side of the fence, opposers say it's important to maintain a tidy, aesthetically pleasing lawn for neighbors. Experts also say not mowing your lawn for a month can cause some problems, like leading to unstable soil and mudslides in some regions of the country. Smith says that experts suggest that the best policy is to find a happy medium between not mowing your lawn and mowing it every weekend. Now, lawn care has even become polarizing and political. Democratic lawmakers are passing regulations to encourage eco-friendly lawn care. And get this, starting next year, California is banning the sale of gas-powered mowers and leaf blowers. Cities like Boston and New York City are also considering banning gas-powered motors. Now, if you're not sure what to do, experts say use a balance of lawn mixture and grass mixture that 
uses and needs less water. And apply the lazy mower approach. That's when you mow every other week or so. They say that in suburban areas, that will allow the grass to grow and allow bees to pollinate on flowers. So you need to find a balance between the two. According to the experts at Michigan State University, pollinators, especially bees, provide an indispensable service. Bees pollinate plants and fruit trees that contribute to our food production. Many researchers believe that the ongoing threat to some bee populations may one day begin to threaten our own ability to produce food. Subscribe to the Daybreak Insider Podcast at Apple or Google Podcast, Spotify, or SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Get our companion Daybreak Insider newsletter each morning at DaybreakInsider.com. Ongoing coverage of breaking news and commentary at SRNNews.com and TownHall.com. Thanks for starting your day with us. I'm Mike Scott.